1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, the last day of January. I can't believe we're already at the end of January. We just celebrated 4th of July a couple of weeks ago it seems to me. Anyway, we're glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Today we're going to talk with Kent Anand. He is the author of You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loved Us First, challenging us not to just look at the issue in light of the current political debate, but to take a look at what the scripture has to say um, and to moderate, uh, modify, alter our view um, based on what scripture has to say. Now, we're not going to engage in a political debate about what public policy should be, but what a Christian's response to those in our communities who are refugees and immigrants among us. So we'll get into that with Kent Anon later this hour. We're also going to talk with Meek Addison, Director of Communications for Urban Family Talk. She's uh, going to join us to talk about the One Million Moms efforts to um, influence Super Bowl ads. They've uh, put together a petition and they have... um, Made that available to Mr. Goodell, who plays a significant role in determining what ads will and will not run during the Super Bowl to try to influence um, the family-friendly nature of ads that might be chosen. So we'll talk with her about that. It's not too late to sign the petition uh, either um, because I've heard there's going to be a Super Bowl next year as well if the Lord tarries. So uh, we'll talk with her about that. First, some of the developing news stories of the day. Democratic Virginia Governor Ralph Northam is pushing back against Republican accusations that he supports infanticide following backlash over his comments on a controversial new state abortion bill, which, uh, as of earlier this week, has now been tabled. Republicans in Virginia and across the country are trying to play politics with women's health, and that is exactly why these decisions belong between a woman and her physician, not legislators, most of whom are men. Northam, a man himself, said... Um, uh, In a statement, well, Northam appeared on a Washington radio station to discuss the repeal act. That's what their abortion uh, law was uh, named, a proposed law which seeks to repeal restrictions on third trimester abortions. Virginia Democratic uh, delegate uh, Kathy Tran, one of the sponsors, sparked outrage from conservatives and others when she confirmed at a hearing that a woman about to give birth could still request an abortion under the new bill. Um, It seems to me you'd have to redefine abortion to be something more akin to infanticide. But anyway, that was what she said. When asked about uh, the comments, the governor, a former pediatric neurologist, said that third trimester abortions are done in extreme cases where a fetus may be severely deformed or not viable with the consent of the mother and often multiple physicians. Now, why killing the child would be the, the appropriate action is not clear. But nonetheless, he says that's what he was talking about. Although, if you listen to the discussion, uh, the context of it and his first words, it seems that that's a bit of a stretch. Anyway, the intent of his comments wasn't clear. Uh, Some conservative commentators and lawmakers believed he was discussing the possibility of letting a newborn die and was possibly endorsing infanticide. Well, the proposed legislation in Virginia follows New York passing a bill last week loosening restrictions on abortion. New Mexico, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Virginia and Washington state. Uh, also, have passed new laws expanding abortion access, or moved to uh, strip old laws from the books that limit abortion. So. Pay attention in Washington to the specifics of what's been done there. President Trump, uh, Intervention 101. Well, President Trump uh, today, or rather Wednesday, called chief intelligence officials naive and suggested they go back to school after they told Congress that North Korea is unlikely to dismantle its nuclear arsenal and that the Iran nuclear deal is working. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has called on the director of national intelligence and the FBI chief to intervene and tutor the president. Schumer called on Dan Coats, Director of National Intelligence, to stage an intervention with the president after he took the unusual move Wednesday of criticizing Coats, CIA Director Gina Haspel, and FBI Director Christopher Wray after their Tuesday appearance before the Senate Intelligence Committee. President Trump's criticism of the testimony you and other intelligence leaders provided to Congress yesterday was extraordinarily inappropriate. Now, let me just uh, add a little something here. It's not uncommon for a president to reject Uh, The position taken by the intelligence community, what is highly unusual is for the president to take to Twitter and make that a public uh, criticism. And for that, I think many who might even agree with the president suggest that was a wrong tack to take. Uh, Anyway, Senator Schumer wrote to Coates, adding later that I believe it is incumbent on you, Director Ray and Director Haspel, to impress upon him how critically important it is for him to join you and the leadership of our intelligence community in speaking with a unified and accurate voice about national security threats. Speaking publicly with a unified voice is important. Agreeing is not uh, or disagreeing, rather, is not altogether unusual. The extraordinary um, criticism on Twitter was... um, where the the deviation took place and I would agree an inappropriate deviation. A bipartisan committee of House and Senate lawmakers met for the first time Wednesday, aiming to work out a deal on border security and avoid another government shutdown in a few weeks, the 15th of February, to be more precise. I'm hoping that Valentine's Day, there'll be something of a love fest and they'll just, their hearts will be warmed and they'll come up with an agreement to avoid a government shutdown. But then again, I'm delusional. It was clear that Democrats and Republicans remain very divided over the president's long-promised border wall. Both sides Optimism They could reach a deal that would stop the government from shutting down again on the 15th. However, Democrats dismissed the president's call for a physical border wall and argued that smart border security technology would be more effective and cost efficient. Well, it certainly should be a part of the border security plan for the U.S., but quite frankly, you've got to have physical borders as well. This is more about politics than policy, I suspect, given that many of the most vociferous um, uh, opponents have supported more vociferous the building of walls in the past. Anyway, Republicans argued that a barrier on the U.S.-Mexico border is needed in some places and that smart technology alone does not stop anyone from crossing into the U.S. It certainly documents the crossing. It uh, alerts you to the crossing, but it does not prevent it or slow it down. Polar vortex. Well, a University of Iowa student has died after being found unresponsive on campus grounds early Wednesday as a, the polar vortex gripping the Midwest and Arctic temperatures that have been linked to at least seven other deaths continues. Campus police found Gerald Bells, an 18-year-old, behind an academic building on the Iowa City campus just before 3 a.m. Police haven't released a cause of death, but believe the frigid temperature played a role. Um, it was reported, meanwhile, an 82-year-old Illinois man was found dead outside several hours after he fell trying to get into his home. The Peoria Journal-Star reported his cause of death was recorded as related to cold exposure. In Indiana, a 22-year-old police officer and his wife were killed in a crash on an icy road. South Bend station uh, WBND-TV reported um, Ligonier police officer Ethan Kaiser's FU, SUV rather. Um, spun into the path of another SUV, killing the couple and the driver of the other vehicle. 21-year-old Shauna Kaiser officials uh, uh, speaking to um, media said, other deaths included a man struck and killed by a snowplow in the Chicago area and a Milwaukee man found frozen to death in a garage. So take these temperatures very seriously. And on this day in 2005, jury selection began in Santa Maria, California for Michael Jackson's child molestation trial. Today is... um, almost the eve of the release of uh, Leaving Neverland, a documentary that is an expose on those very charges. And on this day in 1958, the United States enters the space age with its first successful launch of a satellite, Explorer 1 from Cape Canaveral. And on this day in 1950, President Harry S. Truman announces he's ordered development of a hydrogen bomb. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on ninety three point nine KPDQ.
2: We're back twenty minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. U.S. Customs and Border Protection officials announced today that their biggest fentanyl bust ever was completed, saying they captured nearly two hundred and fifty four pounds of the deadly synthetic opioid from a secret compartment inside a loaded uh, a load rather of Mexican produce headed into Arizona. Uh, The drug was found hidden Saturday morning in a a compartment under the near floor of a tractor trailer after a scan during secondary inspection indicated some anomalies in the load. And the agency's police dog team alerted officers to the presence of drugs. Well, most of the seized fentanyl was an overall street value of about $3.5 million, was in white powder form, but about two pounds of it, about a, a kilogram, uh, was contained in pills. Agents also seized about 395 pounds of methamphetamine with well, a street value of $1.18 million. It said uh, that a quarter milligram of, uh, or the size of a small grain of salt of fentanyl, which is a dangerous opioid, can kill a person very quickly. The seizure, he said, had prevented an immeasurable number of doses of the drug that could have harmed so many families. Well, Mexican traffickers have been increasingly uh, smuggling the drug into the United States, mostly hidden in passenger vehicles and tractor trailers, trying to head through ports of entry Uh, In the Nogales, Arizona and San Diego areas, fentanyl has caused a surge in fatal overdoses around the country, including the 2016 accidental death of pop star legend Prince, who consumed the opioid in counterfeit pills that looked like the narcotic analgesic Vicodin. So we don't know what he thought he was taking at the time. Meanwhile, President Trump vowed on Twitter Thursday to stop a migrant caravan from entering the U.S. with the more... Uh, with rather more troops as the group heads north from Central America. More troops being sent to the southern border to stop the attempted invasion of illegals through large caravans into the country. He wrote on Twitter on, uh, earlier today, We have stopped the previous caravans and we will stop these two with a wall. It would be so much easier and less expensive being built with an exclamation point. Uh, more than 2,600 migrants uh, connected to a caravan that left from Honduras in mid-January had arrived in Mexico City on Wednesday, uh, it's been reported. Another caravan is expected to depart from San Pedro Sulo, uh, Honduras on the 16th of February. Uh, tweet about more troops was one of many that the president sent out uh, Thursday morning about the border wall that he's tried to secure funding for, even though an historically long government shutdown or through that shutdown as one of his major campaign promises. Meanwhile, the president's renewed call on Wednesday for the border wall to be part of the final government uh, spending package. Uh, He warned uh, congressional negotiators that they were wasting their time if they didn't include funding uh, for some kind of uh, barrier. If the committee of Republicans and Democrats now meeting on border security is not discussing or contemplating a wall or physical barrier, they are wasting their time. He tweeted on Wednesday. The message came as lawmakers from both chambers were preparing to meet uh, Uh, As part of what's called a conference committee to hash out an agreement on border security spending, hoping to avoid another government shutdown. And again, that is due to resume on the 15th of February uh, if that um, if some kind of agreement is not met. Well, just 28 days ago, Nancy Pelosi claimed the speaker's gavel and promised that her house would be bipartisan and unifying. Uh, What have we seen since? Now, this is, uh, in all fairness, not altogether dissimilar to what the Republicans declared when uh, Barack Obama took the White House uh, and they held the majority that uh, preventing his agenda from moving forward was a top priority. But House Democrats are pushing to open the floodgates of millions of taxpayers dollars to pay for elective abortions, even as Pelosi insisted that she can't offer more than a dollar to build a border wall. And then earlier this week, Democrats on the National Resources Committee announced they would remove So Help Me God from the oath that's administered to witnesses who testify before the committee. So under the new Democratic House majority, it is yes to taxpayer funding of abortion, no to a border wall, and no to uh, the word God in the oath. Well, on Tuesday night, Representative Garrett Graves, a Republican member of that committee, joined... uh, Uh, with others in saying that this uh, was not going to be successful. In 2012, Democrats removed the phrase uh, from their party platform. After widespread criticism, the party officials reinstated an uh, oblique reference to God, but only after voting three times amid a chorus of boos from convention delegates opposed uh, to God in the platform. Well, the reaction from GOP House members to this latest outrage Um, was swift. We obviously need more God here, not less, they said. Well, House Republican Conference Chairman Liz Cheney says it's incredible, but not surprising that the party would try to remove God from committee proceedings in one of their first acts as the majority. Uh, should anyone be surprised that the same party that wants to uh, take the lives of children up to the moment of their birth would also eliminate any reference or notion to accountability to God? Well, connecting the two may be a bit of a, a stretch, but nonetheless, the effort has been uh, prevented. Uh, and the because of the hue and cry, the so help me God in the uh, oath for those testifying before the committee will remain there, and I think it is a an acknowledgement of the sovereignty of God in that statement, but I wonder how many times people uh, perjure themselves in the eyes of heaven who have no regard for God whatsoever uh, so i you know I, I'm grateful that we use that kind of language, but I would like to think that we take it seriously enough that it would actually have an impact on our hearts and what we say in response to questions that are being posed. I'm not so sure that's the case, but nonetheless, this latest effort has been uh, prevented. Well, the Electoral College remains in place over. Two centuries after the framers of the Constitution empowered it to select presidents. Occasionally maligned, the system of electing a chief executive has been incredibly successful for the American people. Well, many modern voters might be surprised to learn that when they step into the ballot box to select their candidate for president, they actually are casting a vote for fellow Americans called electors. Now, these electors appointed by the states are pledged to support the presidential candidate the voters have supported. The Electoral College holds its vote on Monday after the second Wednesday in December following the election. Well, the uh, framers—they created the Electoral College after much debate and compromise—but it's provided stability to the process of picking presidents. Though the winner of the national popular vote typically, typically rather, takes the presidency, they vote. uh, That vote failed to determine the winner in four elections: the first in 1824, in 1876, in 1888, and in 2000. Some see the Electoral College as a peculiar and mystifying institution that ensures only a few select individuals will ever cast a direct vote for president of the United States. Others complain that the system rewards smaller states with more proportional power than large ones. Every four years around election time, there are murmurs about revamping the system and moving toward a direct national popular vote. Well, Colorado lawmakers have taken the steps to end the Electoral College in just that effort. Well, as one of the um, Uh, Legal experts uh, from the Heritage Foundation noted in a paper on the subject, he writes, and this is Hans von Spakovsky, who's been a guest on this program on several occasions, in creating the basic architecture of the American government, the founders struggled to satisfy each state's demands for greater representation while attempting to balance popular sovereignty against the risk posed to the majority from uh, majoritarian rule. End quote. Well, some elements of the Electoral College, such as the indirect vote through intermediaries, uh, were hotly debated in 1787 in the Constitutional Convention. It was eventually justified in part as a stopgap to potentially reverse the vote if the people elected a criminal, a traitor, or similar kinds of heinous persons. The founders wanted to empower democratic elements in the American system, but they feared a kind of pure, unrestrained democracy that had brought down great republics in the past. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional republic. And that is precisely because the framers despised and understood historically the dangers of a direct democracy. Well, the product of the founders' compromise has been well-balanced and enduring, and we would be wise to leave it intact. I suppose we should probably do a much better job of, in, of educating the American people as to the virtues of the system, so that at least if it's challenged, it's uh, challenged with a clearer understanding of what its intent was and what its impact has actually been over the life of the nation. Well, Alexander Hamilton, to into the Electoral College in Federalist 68. He argued that it was uh, important for the people as a whole to have a great deal of power in choosing their president, but it was also desirable that the immediate election should be made by men most capable of analyzing the qualities adapted to the station and acting under circumstances favorable to deliberation and to a judicious combination of all the reasons and inducements which were proper to govern their choice. Well, we've fallen far from that. It's simply a matter of... Uh, Uh, wrote at this point. But Hamilton also wrote that this system of intermediaries would produce a greater amount of stability and that an intermediate body of electors will be much less apt to convulse the community with any extraordinary or violent movements than the choice of one who was himself to be the final object of the public's wishes. Well, as students of ancient history, the founders feared the destructive passions of direct democracy. And as recent subjects of an overreaching monarch, they equally feared the rule of an elite unresponsive uh, to the will of the people. Electoral College was a compromise, neither fully democratic nor aristocratic, and the Constitution addresses it directly. I don't have time to go into it now, but we would do well to seek to better understand the purpose of the um, Electoral College, what it was designed to avoid or prevent, and whether or not it's relevant in the 21st century, not as a knee-jerk response, because my guy or gal didn't win, uh, but in the broader context of history. We'll see what happens. 30 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Kent Anon is coming up next. He's the author of You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants, Because God Loved Us First. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: 36 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. The book we're going to talk about is simply titled, Well, Welcome. You Welcomed Me. Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loved Us First. Now, just bringing up the title can be somewhat controversial among those who believe this is only a political issue, but my next guest writes a book that challenges us to think about the subject of welcome from the, the perspective of a follower of Christ. You Welcome Me vividly conveys the stories of refugees and other immigrants throughout the world, challenging preconceptions and inviting readers to consider how the lives of displaced people might intersect with our own stories and ultimately with God's story. Compelling. Uh, It's a compelling, inspiring book. at one of the most pressing issues of our day. And my guest, uh, Kent Anon, is the author and joins us today to talk about just that. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: Hi, Georgine. Good to be with you.
2: Well, this is obviously a hot button issue in our culture today. I'm not sure that phrase applies to those in the church, but it certainly is a divisive issue. Uh, So you're writing the book is very timely. Uh, Talk a bit about what motivated you to uh, write this book at this time to the body of Christ to consider how we should as ambassadors of Christ approach this issue.
3: Uh, it's a great question. I think this topic has been kind of you know it's always been in the background for well for centuries even and for millennia. Uh, but over the past few years in our country, and I just thought, oh, it's an important topic. It's important as followers of Jesus that we think it through Christ- Christianly. And it felt like sometimes the, in the church we were talking about it as a political issue instead of as a an issue of following Jesus and a chance to to have imaginations and ideas shaped by God's love for us and God's love for people who have lost their homes and have had to flee. So it just felt like, oh, let's let's make sure we keep on being shaped by Jesus and how we think through an uh, uh, issue, as you said, that can be a hot topic issue that can kind of push our buttons and get us thinking politically really quickly.
2: I appreciate that in the book, you approach the public policy um, issues surrounding immigration and refugee uh, status and so on. You approach it in a very wise and, and level way, challenging us not to oversimplify, uh, not to retreat to our respective corners uh, of on one side of the political spectrum or the other, but to think more broadly about the issue and to consider our, our status as ambassadors of Christ over that of any other consideration um, that might influence uh, the corner that we end up in in the, uh, the argument.
3: Yes exactly I think if we uh, we can get pushed into just a political party, then we're not we're not um we're not being led mostly by love and I think we want to be mostly led by love and then also when it gets to politics then there are quickly these either ors like oh we either need to be really welcoming or we need to be one about security but these aren't either ors i think there are there are subjects that we can approach and we can be wise and welcoming we can work for security and we can also be. Uh, even more generous than we are being. So I, I think, like you said, we can break these down and we can give people ways to address their concerns, take their concerns seriously. But let's look at the facts, let's look at research, and let's also look at a biblical, um, biblical understanding of how we can look at these issues and especially look at these people.
2: Now, as I mentioned in the book, you give us a profile of some who have lived through the experience that might humanize what is otherwise, uh, for many of us, sort of an abstract debate. Um, how did you approach telling their stories and, and perhaps, first of all, learning the stories of those who find themselves in the middle of this tug-of-war of ideas?
3: Yes, I started working with refugees 25 years ago. I lived in Europe. I worked with refugees, lived in the hostel. And so refugees were coming up from Sierra Leone and coming up from the, coming from the city of Sierra that was under siege at that point. And and when I was writing this book specifically, um, I spent time in northern Uganda with uh, South Sudanese refugees. I spent time in Jordan with Syrian refugees. I talked and visited people around the country who were working with refugees and who had been refugees themselves. And it's so important to study the research and the facts and understand the issues well, but it's also really important to listen to people's stories. And, and it's found that through different surveys and research, a lot of times our views, maybe even more than we realize, are shaped by the stories we hear and the people we meet, maybe even more than by data, you know, or, or what the policy issues are or what the research is. So we want we want to keep knowing people and letting our, our love for people and our relationships with people uh, be an important part of this debate as well.
2: Now, one of the issues that emerges is the issue of fear. How do you hope your book, um, You Welcomed Me, helps readers with the question of love versus fear and or legitimate concern. I'm not sure fear is the, the a word that encompasses every concern that people has. But how do you how do you hope your book helps to help us helps us to manage some of the questions that we have?
3: Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Well, I think in scripture we hear that you know God's perfect love casts out all fear. So I think there are two answers to your question. One is we want to be guided by love, not fear. Just theologically and you know, as people of God and people who are loved by God, we we. Want that to be our dominant concern. We want that to be our our dominant guide, really. That we're we're people who are loved and can be generous because God is loved and generous with us. That's how God talks with the people of Israel when He talks about welcoming and caring for strangers in their land. God says, "Oh, remember, you were strangers once. You know, you were exploited people in Egypt once, and and so remember that. Remember that you're now free, and so treat others with respect as you in a way as you." You know, wish you would have been treated that commandment of Jesus. And so that's one. And the second part is with these concerns, let's look at them carefully. So, you know, are people going to take our jobs when they come in or are we going to have less safe neighborhoods for our families? I think we can look at each of these concerns as I do in one of the chapters of the book and look at research and look at how uh, a lot of times the neighborhoods where immigrants move in actually become safer neighborhoods. So it's not just people that can dominate the news and actually. When immigrants come in, they can help our economy greatly, and they contribute to uh, more employment, and they can help wages of people who are already living here go up. So I think those two parts of one, let's look at facts and research and take those concerns seriously. And when we look at them, I think the case is really strong for why we should be welcoming refugees and immigrants. And then, secondly, we, we want love to guide us more than we want you to guide us as people who are loved by God.
2: Most of us are not public policy makers. We're not uh, directly involved in the debate. We're not going to uh, play a role in the outcome of, of the decisions that are made in Washington or in state houses across the country. But we are members of the body of Christ, and we are confronted with either the uh, the challenge of of immigration in our respective communities, the opportunities that presents for the body of Christ, Um, How do you suggest for those of us, aside from the public policy decisions that are being made or will be made and the role that we may or may not have to play, how should we approach uh, our neighbors, those who come to become our neighbors um, in a way that's Christ honoring and um, doesn't allow the divisive debate to um, determine how we approach those who are refugees among us?
3: Mm, that's a great question, and I've I've gotten to know a recently a refugee named Saul. He watched his parents uh, be killed in front of him in his small town in the small village um, in Sudan, and then he was kidnapped and made to be a child soldier. Eventually, he made it here, and as I talked with him, one of the things he mentioned to me is, you know, there's these big systems and big debates and policy debates, but then he told me as he told me his story. He talks about these different moments where what he called a small act of kindness made all the difference to him. So it was someone who bought him a meal, a truck driver in Uganda who bought him a meal when he was, you know, digging through garbage because he was on the verge of starving. And then he, you know, someone else helped him fill out paperwork. And then once he's here, and this is the case for many refugees, someone maybe took an hour a week at the local library or in their church to help them learn English as a second language. I know lots of people and have friends who help refugees go to doctor's appointments as they navigate, you know, the system with language and complicated paperwork. So there's so many wonderful ways that our small acts of kindness can really make a huge difference uh, in the life of someone who's had to leave home behind and now uh, is in this new place and has newly become our neighbors.
2: We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversations. Again, our conversation, rather, we're talking about the book, You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God First Loved Us. A Christian uh, uh, apologetic, if you will, an approach to how we as Christians should respond in the midst of a very contentious debate, an opportunity to distinguish ourselves in the way we approach it with grace and love, uh, even though we may disagree on the approach, the um, policy decisions that should be made. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Kent Anon. He's Director of Humanitarianism and Disaster Leadership at Wheaton College, where he provides leadership to the MA program within the Humanitarian Disaster Institute. He is co-founder of Haiti Partners, serves on the board of directors of the Equitas Group, Philanthropic Foundation, and is also the author of Slow Kingdom Coming, Aftershock, and Follow Jesus Through the Eyes of the needle. We're talking about his latest book, You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God First Loved Us. Now, in the first chapter, you open the book with your son's question, are we for them or against them? Which reminds us that this is a teachable moment for young people as well as the adults who are engaged in the debate.
3: Yes, absolutely. And it was helpful. I was working on the book and you get into immigration and refugee issues and they all get so complex so fast. Uh, and our children are listening to these issues as well, both the complexity and also the the tone of the conversation that can become pretty harsh on these issues. And so, when my son asked me when I was talking about what I was writing about, he said, "Wait, Dad, are we for them or against them?" And I love that on two levels. One, like you said, it's a teachable moment, and we remember our, our children are watching us to see how generous we are, and are we just looking out for our self-interest, or are we also as followers of Jesus, looking out for the interests of others and people who are vulnerable. And the other part is, there is this fundamental question right at the core of this, is are, are we for people who have had to flee their homes and, and run away and leave everything behind, or are we against them? And then we need to work out the details, but let's make sure uh, that we're on the right side of that question and say, yes, we're we're for them, and we have to be wise, and maybe we can't help everybody, but we can be for them and find the best ways that we as a country, as a community, as a church, and as individuals uh, help people who are in need of help.
2: And I just want to remind listeners who may have just joined us that the book does an excellent job, I thought, of uh, presenting the the real challenges of decision-making on the part of how the nation addresses some of the challenging and complex issues related to this issue. So you don't oversimplify it. You challenge us not to do the same, but you encourage believers to think about their primary role as ambassadors of Christ and what our disposition should be. Now, one of the things that you remind us of uh, that might help us in this effort is to empathize. Uh, with those who come to us from a variety of uh, difficult circumstances. Empathy, uh, is it something we can muster up, and how do we learn to empathize if it doesn't come naturally to us, particularly in this issue?
3: I think the primary way we can do this is through a relationship. I think you can do it through you know, watching a documentary or watching a news special or reading an article about someone's life. And, and I think that question that I find helpful is just to remind myself, oh, yes, well, that could be me, couldn't it? That could be me who's, you know, wandering out and having to leave my home and walk for three days to a refugee camp with my 13-year-old and 9-year-old. Um, that could be me and so I think that can develop our our empathy is when we use our imaginations to think lovingly and then the other way is just by getting to know people and there are probably people in, in your life, in my life who are immigrants, who, who are refugees or we could find them and connect with them And listen to their stories and take time to really be with them, listen to them, understand the strains, understand the joys, understand the opportunities and the challenges. And when we do that, I think we can be shaped by empathy, which is a beautiful way to also be shaped by love.
2: Now, one of the things that I think we should probably address is there is a general acceptance of people who come to the country as refugees and immigrants uh, by way of legal means. There's frustration with the system being overwhelmed. There's anger with those who come into the country for nefarious purposes. How do we, as as Christ followers, sort all of that out in our own hearts and minds as we seek to honor Christ in the way we respond to people in our own uh, circle in our neighborhoods, in our churches, uh, when we encounter them in places that we uh, we live?
3: Yes, uh, I think those are really important questions. And so one, you know, for people who are coming and if they're criminals or trying to bring in drugs or different things, like part of loving our neighbors is protecting our communities. And, and we don't want people to come in who are going to harm us and harm our communities. So I think security is a really important part of this to me wise and work hard for security and to keep getting better at that, so I think that's one part. Then when it comes to people who are undocumented, especially who have been here for years and decades, that's a complex issue and I think in in many ways our country has had a broken immigration system for more than 20 years. There isn't a legal pathway for people who have been here for a long, long time who are our neighbors who have been paying taxes, who have been working hard, who our businesses gave them incentives to come over. Uh, and work, and they've helped us in harvesting the vegetables and fruits that we eat. They help us with all kinds of different work in the country. So I think on that, um, there needs to be understanding. They may have broken uh, some rules and some laws, but we also, as a country, uh, failed in our system. And so let's work with grace towards a, a system that can be welcoming and understand people who are here and positive part of our communities, I think there really is a fair way. Now, whether the politicians can get there is another question, but I think there are some good solutions out there that that do provide a way forward that's secure, recognizes our faults, recognizes other people didn't come weekly, but let's find a way to move forward together.
2: Well, and we need to resist the temptation to become vigilantes, that I'm frustrated with the system, the lack of leadership on the part of uh, policymakers, and so we, we take it upon ourselves to communicate that frustration to individuals, Perhaps not knowing their story at all, so that it's a mm-hmm. challenge for us um, again to put on that hat as ambassadors of Christ. Um, you know, Lord, what would you have me do today in this circumstance with these people at this time in this place, um, mm. and and make that our priority, acknowledging all of the other things that have gone wrong.
3: Exactly, I think that's it. And on that, on that human level, I think it gets pretty simple. Of. How welcoming can we offer small acts of kindness, and we need to vote and support our politicians, and call our senators, representatives when there's a vote. Uh, You know, there are ways we can do that. But like you said, on a personal level, I just think there there are opportunities to be the opposite of vigilantes, but instead to be ambassadors for Christ and to make people know God's love. And the beautiful thing is what Jesus promises in Matthew 25 when we're helping people who are strangers, who have have had to leave everything behind. It's not just that we're helping them, but I think Jesus says we're also in those moments meeting God. And part of the welcoming is that we are transformed in these encounters, and in some real way, God's presence is there in people who are vulnerable and in need. And so this isn't just an invitation to help other people. I think being welcoming and loving and kind is an invitation to be our best selves and be transformed by God's grace, too.
2: You know, I think about, I, I want to be protective of the country that I've been born into, and I, I'm, I'm grateful to be an American, but what we also have to consider is there is an eternal perspective that individuals who are here, for whatever means or whatever reason, their opportunities to share the love of Christ, it has eternal uh, impact. It has uh, the potential to impact a life for all eternity, not just for my comfort and preference today. And so it's a real challenge, I think, for us as Americans to consider um, both our responsibility to be good citizens, but also to serve as ambassador of, of Christ and seize every opportunity that he might give us under whatever circumstance to extend the love of Christ and to share his gospel.
3: Yes, well said exactly. that. We're, we're Americans and we take that responsibility seriously, but even more so we're citizens of the kingdom of God by God's grace. And so we want that to be guiding how we're Welcoming and loving and uh, being responsible and being in relationship with people in our communities.
2: Well, I thank you so much for talking with me today and for the book. Again, you welcomed me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants, Because God First Loved Us. Kent, Anand, thank you so much.
3: Great to be with you, Georgine. Thank you.
2: The book, by the way, is published by InterVarsity Press. News and traffic up next.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock is the time James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Later in this hour, we're going to talk with Miki Addison. She is the uh, director of communications for Urban Family Talk. She's a spokesman for the One Million Moms, division of the American Family Association. We're going to talk about their efforts to um, petition um, the commissioner of the NFL to try to get the... uh, commercials, which are so popular during the Super Bowl, uh, to reflect the family, um, small family members who will be watching the game. So we'll talk with her about that effort and about some of the successes they have had in the past in just uh, politely asking and pressing for uh, appropriate programming at times when children are likely to be viewing. Speaking of children, when you're explaining to your grandchildren or great-grandchildren why Uh, this generation bankrupted theirs. Um, The Congressional Budget Office makes the uh, uh, determination that the deficit exists to the extent that it does due to spending rather than the tax cut. Well, during the government shutdown, with the exception of hearing how it affected some federal workers, the government went on functioning like nothing happened because so much of it was funded by autopilot spending. Well, the United States spends money like a drunken sailor much of the time, even with a Uh, A blindfold and both hands tied behind its back, the spending just continues. And instead of blaming the irresponsible use of taxpayer money and risky borrowing, some are inclined to blame the voters who don't like being taxed. Following the Great Recession, we were lectured on how the Bush tax cuts were to blame for the economy tanking. Well, on the most foundational level, it can be argued that tax cuts are never to blame because the government has no inherent right to the earnings of the people, and it should modify its spending based on... Uh, What the people are willing to pay, but the government can't give tax cuts. They simply refrain from taking money that isn't theirs. But if you can't don't accept rather that philosophical premise, then you have to look at the data. To that end, the Congressional Budget Office issued a report on the nation's uh, government economy. Uh, on the uh, next um, decade, and the Washington Examiner summarized the findings writing this. A new report from the Congressional Budget Office makes it abundantly clear that historically high spending is what's driving the massive growth of deficits over the next decade, not the tax cuts that President Trump signed into law in 2017, or for that matter, previous tax cuts. As shown on the chart below, which of course you can't see, in the 50 years prior to the effective date of the Trump tax cut, tax revenue averaged 17.4 percent of gross domestic product, while spending averaged 20.3 percent. With the Trump tax cut in place, revenue is below the historical average for the next few years. But by the middle of the decade, it returns to that average and then surpasses it as some provisions of the tax cut begin to expire. By 2029, the end of the CBO projection period, revenue reaches 18.3 percent, or nearly one point of GDP above its historical average. In contrast, spending will exceed its historical average in every year through the next decade, hitting 22.7 percent by 2029. Even if taxes were to return to their record level at 20 percent achieved in 2000, the nation would still be running a deficit every year over the next decade. Well, these trends suggest that one of two solutions is needed to address the nation's debt problem. We can either cut spending or raise taxes beyond what they have ever been historically, as shown, or rather as some uh, surely want the, to tax the wealthy, you know, some 70 percent. We have to remember that doing so dries up capital. The only solution that's feasible is drastically slashing the size of government. And so far, that's not very popular this round of, uh, in Washington anyway. And it's the only solution that would achieve anything. Raising taxes wouldn't ensure that federal spending remains at current levels. With more revenue, a Democratic Congress would be inclined to spend more, assuming they control other branches of government in the near future. And when we look at the debt clock, we see the entitlements are the main drivers of national debt. It's shocking that these programs have grown to be such a liability for the nation that our fiscal well-being is being harmed by seemingly well-intentioned programs. Well... I won't go on, but uh, the Congressional Budget Office confirms what many have been suggesting all along: the deficits are due to spending, not tax cuts. Now, it's possible that that could be uh, reversed if uh, spending was reasonable, or at least was reined in somewhat. It's possible that the the configuration would be different. But as it stands today, it's our spending that continues to be out of control and threatens the livelihood of future generations. So be prepared to try to explain that to your grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Well, the top Department of Defense official says that three more large migrant caravans are headed toward the U.S. border. John Rood, Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, testified to the House Armed Services Committee earlier this week that there are currently three large migrant caravans headed toward the United States with at least having Uh, Around 12,000 people, the new caravans originating in Central America, were brought up by the ranking member, Representative Mac Thornberry. For example, there are stories that there is a new caravan that's forming in Central America and headed this way. In your uh, conversations with them, uh, uh, will they be ready to adjust to changes in the situation, uh, he asked of mr rood yes that 's right, and you 're correct. Current information shows a caravan of over twelve thousand people. There are three that are uh, that we are tracking. The Department of Homeland Security is tracking in route, and one uh, of which is over twelve thousand people in the latest estimate and uh, So yes, we do have to be flexible on these events, as Admiral um, Gildy, who also uh, testified earlier, mentioned the number of troops and the mix. Uh, of them has varied over time and will need to to do so and do work very closely with the Department of Homeland Security and um, others to understand uh, what the needs might be. Well, the hearing comes as Chairman Adam Smith, a Democrat out of Washington, has been opposed to President Trump's authorizing the deployment of active duty troops to the U.S.-Mexico border in response to the caravans. Acting Secretary of Defense Patrick Shanahan told reporters earlier this week there will be an increase of several thousand more service members being deployed to the border. There are currently around 2,300 active duty military members on the border already, with a number of National Guardsmen being uh, around uh, the same. So as we contemplate the future of our nation and whether or not we are a nation with borders, how to respond to that, how to fix our broken immigration system, uh, the the prospect of overwhelming crowds continuing to make their way to the border um, interjects a sense of urgency in resolving these issues. I'm not very hopeful, but it does um, interject a sense of urgency. Well, the Supreme Court decided last week to not review the case of Joe Kennedy. Now, Joe Kennedy, you might recall, is a Washington State football coach who was fired for praying with his players. Now, he didn't invite them to pray with him. They joined him as he prayed. But the game isn't over yet. Uh, there's reason to believe the Supreme Court might revisit the case and rule in his favor. Well, Kennedy uh, made headlines after he was fired from the Bremerton School District because fans and students could see him uh, take a knee in silent prayer after football games. So Kennedy's attorneys with First Liberty Institute and uh, Kirkland and Ellis LLP took action. They asked the Supreme Court to reverse a decision by the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit that allowed the school district to fire him. And although the Supreme Court declined to hear the case... All may not be lost. According to the Daily Signal, in sports, as in life, the best team doesn't always win. Sometimes things just don't go your way. Just ask the New Orleans Saints or the Kansas City Chiefs. Once the court decides not to hear the case, it's usually game over. But apparently, that may not be the case this time around. In any given year, nearly 8,000 cases are appealed to the Supreme Court. But the court may only agree to hear about 80 or so of those appeals. Um, those aren't great odds. In Kennedy's case, although the, ca- the uh, court rather decided not to hear the case, it's more like halftime. In a relatively rare move, four of the court's justices, Samuel Alito, Clarence Thomas, Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh, issued a statement explaining that the court cannot make a decision on whether to hear Kennedy's appeal because important factual questions remain unresolved. And depending on how those questions are answered, the court may revisit the case. But the justices went further, expressed serious concern over the lower court's decision and its implications for the First Amendment rights of teachers and coaches. Alito explained that the Ninth Circuit's understanding of the free speech rights of public school teachers is troubling and may justify a review in the future. If this case were before us as an appeal within our mandatory uh, jurisdiction, our clear obligation would be to vacate the Ninth Circuit court's decision. Well, the four justices also took issue with the lower court rationale that public school teachers and coaches may be fired if they engage in any expression that the school does not like while they are on duty. And the Ninth Circuit Court appears to regard teachers and coaches as being on duty at all times from the moment they report to work to the moment they depart, provided that they are within the eyesight of students, end quote. And while these four justices may have blown the whistle on the Ninth Circuit Court's uh, free speech analysis, they appear even more concerned that the case's religious liberty implications uh, were not rightly handled. So we're going to continue to follow this case as it may end up back in front of the Supreme Court at some point in the not too distant future. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 16 minutes after 5 o'clock. Coming up later this hour, we'll talk with Miki Addison with One Million Moms trying to influence the uh, caliber of ads during the Super Bowl. We'll find out what they're doing and how likely it is to make a difference.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Twenty two minutes after five o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, British newspaper The Telegraph has agreed to pay First Lady Melania Trump substantial damages and her legal costs after running an article last Saturday filled with false statements. In quotes, we apologize unreservedly to the First Lady and her family for any embarrassment caused by our publication of these allegations the Telegraph wrote. In an official apology to uh, Mrs. Trump, the paper laid out the numerous false statements published in its previous magazine cover story titled The Mystery of Melania. Among the incorrect claims published in the article were suggestions that Trump's father controlled the family with a fearsome presence and that the former model only became successful after she met now President Donald Trump, who assisted her in her career. Well, following last Saturday's uh, Telegraph magazine cover story, uh, we have been asked to make clear that the article contained a number of false statements, which we accept should not have been published. Mrs. Trump's father was uh, not a fearsome presence and did not control the family. Mrs. Trump did not leave her design and architecture course at university relating to the completion of an exam, as alleged in the article, but rather because she wanted to pursue a successful career as a professional model. Mrs. Trump was not struggling in her modeling career before she met Mr. Trump, and she did not advance in her career due to the assistance of Mr. Trump, the Telegraph wrote. Well, the newspaper also got some basic facts about the Trumps' relationship wrong. you think they would have at least checked those. That would be easily confirmed, writing originally that the couple met in 96 when they actually met in 98. The paper also claimed Melania's mother, father, sister moved to New York in 2005 and lived in properties owned by uh, Trump. Further, the Telegraph claimed Melania uh, cried on election night, which she did not. We accept that Mrs. Trump was successful professionally and so on. So they have uh, made a thorough and complete retraction, uh, not only um, uh, paying damages, but uh, covering her Legal fees as well. While well, we're hearing it over and over again, but I guess it bears repeating once again. Generations of children have become web addicts. Youngsters are becoming so obsessed with the internet they spend more time on YouTube than with their friends, and parents are increasingly concerned, but are pretty much doing the same thing. Um, The uh, children have become such screen addicts that they're abandoning their friends and hobbies, a major report warns. Researchers found under fives spend an hour and 16 minutes a day online. Their screen time rises to four hours and 16 minutes when gaming and television are included. Youngsters aged 12 to 15 average nearly three hours a day on the web, plus two more hours watching TV. The study said YouTube was a near-permanent feature of many young lives, and 7 in 10 of those, aged 12 to 15, took smartphones to bed. It concluded children were watching people on YouTube pursuing hobbies that they did not do themselves and had recently given up offline. Well, a growing number of parents admitted to researchers that they had lost control of their children's online habits. Well, campaigners uh, described the report from media watchdog Ofcom as frightening, uh, in the early years, children need interaction with other people and play. It's key to their social skills. Sue Palmer, the group Toxic Childhood, says if that doesn't happen when they are small, I don't know where it leads. There is a, uh, the screen time itself, and there uh, then often... Um, is what the screen time is displacing that is of greater concern. Well, the annual report, which was based on 2,000 interviews, also revealed that children aged 5 to 15 spend 20 minutes more online a day than watching TV. One in five preschoolers and two-fifths of five- to eight-year-olds have an iPad or tablet device A fifth of children aged 8 to 12 are on social media despite a supposed ban on under-13s. And nearly one in five children aged 12 to 16 have accidentally spent money online. Accidentally. Children aged 3 to 4 still watch more television than online videos, but their TV consumption is shrinking while their time online is rocketing. Many flock to YouTube and spend hours watching child-friendly videos such as how to make slime or draw animals. Others seek out unboxing videos in which YouTube stars unwrap new products. Some youngsters are becoming so obsessed with YouTube celebrities that they idolize them as role models. Uh, The Ofcom report said some upload videos of their own, hoping to make a career for themselves. Mom and dad may not know. Disturbingly, many watch the lifestyle vloggers pursuing hobbies and interacting with friends instead of doing so themselves. Well, Ofcom spoke to a number of children who uh, had given up their hobbies, such as drawing and doing scooter stunts in order to watch films of other people's uh, other people doing uh, the same. One child who described herself as very, Artsy admitted she rarely tried any craft and preferred to watch others being creative online. Not quite the same thing. Some youngsters, rather, say they socialize with friends less because it was, well, too much effort to go out when uh, they could interact with them online instead. You don't have to see their face or try to read their expressions. You just tweet or text. Or something. Well, YouTube was a near permanent fixture of many children's lives, used throughout the day, researchers said. But many children who go online to watch harmless videos find themselves watching deeply disturbing material as well. Often they come across unsuitable content by accident when they're searching for something else. Sometimes they simply seek out material they're too young to view. They're also led to it by YouTube's own algorithm, which feeds them suggestions based on their tastes, Ofcom found. So if you want to trust, Uh, that the algorithm is going to determine what's appropriate for your kids, then you should be pretty happy with this whole thing. Children prefer YouTube to old-fashioned television or TV on demand services because they could easily access exactly what they wanted to watch and were being served with an endless stream of recommendations tailored exactly to their taste. They are mesmerized. Many of the parents involved in the research were shocked to learn what their children were being uh, had been watching. Two-fifths of those with children aged five to 15 feared that their children were being pressed, or rather, pressured to spend money on the web. Half worried about tech firms harvesting too much information about them, and around a third feared their offspring would see unsuitable content or become radicalized by extremists. Well, despite those fears, many parents of teens admitted that they struggled to control the amount of time their children spend online. Part of that problem was that youngsters prefer to watch content on the web on their own, according to the report. They view watching live TV as a family activity but feel well, far more comfortable on a device which they can control in private. Children often use multiple screens at once, but the hours they spend on each are counted separately for the uh, research. They are also using multiple social media profiles to project a picture-perfect self and to avoid bullying. The number of those aged 12 to 15 being bullied online nearly doubled from 5% in 2017 to 9%. Uh, just this last year. And youngsters uh, now often use several accounts to project different versions of themselves so their real self can avoid social stigma, the report said. More than half of children surveyed say social media presents an unrealistic image, and researchers said glamorous and flattering filters to make them look prettier, thinner, and you know, whatever else, were being used in many cases. About 20 percent of girls said that they needed to look popular online all the time, compared with only 11 percent of the boys. The watchdog found children increasingly faced bullying through services such as WhatsApp. Last week, the father of a 14-year-old blamed Instagram for her death after she viewed posts on the social network that glamorized suicide and self-harm. The Google-owned YouTube platform has also come under fire for allowing jihadists, far-right activists, far-left activists, and hate preachers to influence and have access to children. Wow. By the way, snow is forecast to reach sea level on Monday with an uh, anywhere from a trace to three inches of accumulation possible. Um, maybe not in your area, but we'll tell you more about that tomorrow when we lighten up on our Fun Friday program. Up next, we'll talk with Miki Addison, Director of Communications for Urban Family Talk. For One Million Moms, they want to influence the kind of advertising that's featured during the Super Bowl. We'll find out how and whether or not you can help.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, 1 Million Moms is a division of American Family Association and they know that the big game on Sunday, you know, that Super Bowl thing is why family advocate organizations are urging the NFL commissioner Roger Goodell to keep the entertainment and advertisements clean during the event because families are watching. Mr. Goodell, he weighs in heavily on these decisions, and so the organization is asking him to consider his viewers, all of them, the oldest and the youngest. Well, here to talk with us about that is Miki Addison. She's Director of Communications for Urban Family Talk, a division of American Family Association. She's also co-host with her husband, Will Addison, of airing the Addisons on Urban Family Talk. Thank you so much for joining us today, Miki.
4: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
2: Well, the Super Bowl is coming up, and while some people could care less, a lot of people will be watching, among them lots of children. Tell us about the uh, effort of One Million Moms to try to influence the influencers in, uh, in cleaning up the Super Bowl's commercial uh, act.
4: Yeah, this is just consistent with our efforts to make sure that we are protecting our families and protecting our children. The expectation is that there will be well over 100 million people all across the country tuning in for the 2019 Super Bowl. And this is not a time where parents want to be worried that they're going to have scarred children after these advertisements run their course. I mean, this is a really big business, really expensive business. And we think that parents' voices need to be heard, even preemptively, to say, listen, we are watching. There's no such thing as adult sports. I mean, this is family entertainment, and we're just asking Roger Goodell to
2: to remember that. Yeah, this is primetime, and this is a big national event. Now, tell us a little bit more about One Million Moms.
4: So one of the things that we do is we operate at a very grassroots level. So you've got moms who are paying attention to what's happening, and they will reach out to us and say, hey, you know, I was watching this, it's supposed to be child-friendly, but this type of um, offensive advertisement uh, popped up during child viewing. Or they will talk to us about shows that are out there. A lot of these shows, thankfully, we are not tuning in to watch them ourselves, but there are parents who are serving as watchdogs, and they are saying this is offensive, you know, there's there's mocking going on here, or there's inappropriate sexual content uh, in programs that are airing when kids could be watching and so what we do is we kind of spring into action and first thing we do is we reach out to these networks and we say you know this is really offensive Um, consider that your audience is vast that your audience is diverse and that your programming is airing during a time when kids could um, be victimized by this content if that doesn't work if we don't get a response there then we contact advertisers and we say hey listen we've got a petition here we've got 9,000 signatures or 10,000 or 11,000 signatures These are all concerned parents who are asking you to pull your ads from these shows. Well, money speaks pretty loudly. And so when these advertisers start to jump ship or start to pull their ads, then um, these networks listen.
2: Now, you have had some uh, significant successes of late. Let's talk about some of them uh, that the One Million Mom uh, efforts have achieved.
4: Yeah, one program in particular that was incredibly disturbing was a program called the MIC where it featured children who were being cared for by an aunt and um, just subjected to what I would describe and I think most fair-minded parents would describe as child abuse. I mean, these kids were often in situations where there was sexual innuendo. There were comments about um, human anatomy. There was just vulgarity and all of this happening with kids almost as the focal point of the the delivery in um, the, they would have called it comedy, but we don't think it's funny. We think that it's robbing kids of their innocence. And really I would say infringing upon a parent's right um, to, to guide and to train their kid in the way that they should go. I mean, you see things like this and, you know, and, Unfortunately, our kids kind of think that what they see on television is the norm. Well, Mm -hmm. that's not the norm. Um, We are pleased to say that the M.I.C. has been canceled. When advertisers start to pull um, their ads and they start to jump ship, these um, networks have to respond. I mean, it takes funding um, for anything to keep these shows afloat. So that's one that was a huge success. Um, Fox canceled Lucifer, where there was um, Satan sort of reinvented that he was going to be the quote-unquote Good guy. I mean, just, you know, it's unthinkable. But of course, when you start to sound the alarm and you say, I mean, where are we in our culture that we are really glamorizing evil, which, I mean, the program Lucifer would not be unique in that. So that's another one that was pulled in. And, and we are grateful for that. This happens because parents respond. This happens because we are still the gatekeepers in our homes and we're saying, you know what? somebody's still got to have a little bit of fight left in them, and I'm
2: grateful for those parents who respond. Oh, absolutely. I should mention that One Million Moms have also been uh, instrumental in the cancellation of Once Upon a Time, The Real, O'Neill's, and Impastor, and they helped advertisers make the decision to pull commercials from Teachers, American Housewife, Younger, and Claus. So there's been significant success in efforts to simply approach uh, those who are responsible for providing and producing um, entertainment and those who understand underwrite it through advertisements. That Look, this is unacceptable in the culture. We don't want it in our household. We're urging you to reconsider. So kudos to one million moms. Now, with regard to the um, to the Super Bowl, there has been a petition uh, that's been signed by many, many, many uh, folks asking uh, Mr. Goodell um, to request that uh, Super Bowl Uh, advertisements uh, and that the program itself remains suitable for viewers of all ages. Tell us about the petition and uh, how that whole thing has worked.
4: Yeah, so we've got over 9,000 uh, signatures, of uh, parents who are concerned, who are saying, yeah, you know what, we want to step in before the Super Bowl and want to say we will be watching, we'll be watching with our kids, and we don't want to have our kids robbed of their innocence when we sit down just to watch a ball move up and down a field. And we know that these um, networks are capable of policing themselves. And I'll just give you an example. CBS, who is um, – producing the Super Bowls, airing the Super Bowl, recently rejected a one-minute ad. So we're talking about $10 million. They rejected this ad that came from a cannabis company based in New York. So we know that they know how to say no, even to money, if they think it's going to be overwhelmingly offensive to their audience. Well, how do they know what's offensive? parents have got to speak out. And that's where moms and dads step in. We can't retreat from the culture. We've got to say, you know what, we care and it matters what you're pumping into our living room. So they can police themselves. We're just trying to give them an incentive to do it.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, for listeners who uh, would like to learn more about One Million Moms and the work of American Family uh, Association, what's the best way for them to connect?
4: I'd like to direct your listeners to two websites. That'd be onemillionmoms.com onemillionmoms.com and afa.net. They can learn about all of the ministry divisions under the umbrella of the American Family Association. Our goal and our aim is to not retreat from our culture today, but to really hold the line.
2: Now, as I was introducing you earlier, I mentioned that you are a speaker. You're also a blogger, a pro-family activist. For uh, our listeners who are interested in perhaps learning more about uh, you and your work as a blogger, uh, how can they connect with you? Oh, I appreciate
4: that. You can go to UrbanFamilyTalk.com. I write there and um, listen to shows. You can listen to shows there if you want. Um, I appreciate it. UrbanFamilyTalk.com.
2: And I should mention that you are a New Orleans uh, native. Uh, You and your husband, Will, have four children that you home educate. I sure appreciate your taking the time to talk with us today and let us know about uh, this effort by One Million Moms. Is it too late for listeners uh, at this juncture to uh, sign that petition?
4: I don't think it's ever too late. I mean, you know, we are, Sunday's just right around the corner, but if you're like me and you want to be a little bit, I call it just your activist, we're all very busy, I would say you could still go to 1millionmoms.com and you can put your name on the list. It's just a show of strength.
2: Well, and there'll be a Super, a super Bowl next year as well, so if folks That's want right. to uh, communicate, this is uh, an area that we're concerned about today and in the years to come, uh, you can still be relevant. Thank you so much for talking with us. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Again, uh, my guest, uh, Miki Addison, Director of Communications for Urban Family Talk for One Million Moms, a division of American Family Association. Uh, This Super Bowl uh, petition designed to help influence decisions that will be made by Commissioner Goodell and others about the kinds of commercials that will be seen during the Super Bowl. And it is unfortunate when you're having a great time, you're eating the nachos, you look up and you got to usher the kids out of the room or turn the TV off or just, you know, determined to do something else for those who are interested in the game at all so appreciate that uh, effort we're going to take a quick break we'll be back to wrap things up Uh, so stay with us you're listening to the georgine rice show
1: you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq
2: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, I learned earlier today that the International Christian Concern is inviting uh, all of those concerned to sign a a letter recognizing a group of brave Muslim men who courageously followed their conscience and duty at great personal risk to thwart the attempted bombing of Virgin Mary and Father Siphon Church. Uh, in Nazar City near Cairo, Egypt, in January of this year. Well, in fact, the 5th of January. Saeed Askar, a Muslim cleric, witnessed a terrorist planting bombs on a church roof and immediately called the authorities. A bomb squad responded and, in the process, diffused the bombs, according to an officer. Uh, Now, this was um, a church that uh, would have been inhabited at the time the bombs would have detonated. Well, the actions of those involved saved hundreds of worshipers at that church from Uh, A Christmas Eve Orthodox disaster. Now, the calendar is somewhat different than the Protestant uh, calendar here in the U.S. and in other places. Uh, In the West. So for them, they would have been celebrating Christmas. And it's true in most cases, folks will attend a Christmas service who don't attend any other time. Well, at a time when religious tensions are high in Egypt and for that matter, across the Middle East, it's both refreshing and encouraging to see members of the different faiths defend one another. Well, ICC is asking all concerned individuals to sign a letter that recognizes and honors the risk and sacrifice this imam uh, took, and the bomb squad uh, also took, uh, diffusing the uh, explosive device uh, in order to defend their fellow Egyptians. The letter also expresses sincere and heartfelt sympathy to the families of Major Mustafa Abid, who lost his life in the line of duty. Uh, the organization plans to deliver the letter after all signatures are collected, and um, you can go to their website for more information if you're, uh, if you're interested. Again, this is International Christian Concern going out of its way to acknowledge that there are those who recognize the value of their neighbors and are willing to take some personal risk uh, to um, try to preserve their safety. And this is one of those examples. Again, you can uh, go to international Christian concerns website to sign that letter. If you would like to add your voice to many others saying, yes, we appreciate and want to honor those uh, in this Egyptian community who did just that. Well, did you know that, um, Once passenger pigeons blanketed the American skies. Flocks were so large that they darkened the skies for hours as they migrated. And then very suddenly they all died off. The very last one of its kind, which was affectionately named Martha, lived in Cincinnati Zoo but died in 1914. Well, the birds were, well, hunted and shot not even for food, just for the fun of it. Yes, some people might consider that fun, but that's not what um, decimated the species. Well, researchers have now found that for flocks of carrier pigeons to flourish, they need a community of others. The uh, community raised their uh, young together. They searched for food together. They thrived when around others. And when their numbers dipped below a certain point, suddenly the community was shattered and they simply perished. Well, sometimes I think we see that same phenomenon playing out in our midst. We know that statistics and studies tell us that for people and for a community to flourish, faith and the church is needed. Now, I say faith because not everyone embraces Christianity, but there is something inherent in living in community and being people who acknowledge at least Um, a higher authority, there is a benefit to the individual and to the community as well. We need to create value for the world. Faith communities are critically important to the fabric of society they're some of the most effective efficient and compelling organizations at helping people who have nowhere to turn so how could silicon valley invo- ignore rather one of the most important parts of society why wouldn't we build a social impact platform I- that is a, a digital destination for faith who's addressing the problem well did you know nonprofit 501c3 religious organizations generate approximately 135 billion dollars per year in charitable donations. It's an estimated, rather it is estimated that the Catholic Church alone operates more than 140,000 schools, 10,000 orphanages, 5,000 hospitals, and nearly 16,000 other health clinics, according to David Patton. A faith community, yours and mine, is Well, it's a good place not only for individuals who attend, but for the community at large. In the concept of community building, your third place is the social environment separate from your two typical social places, your home being the first place, your work being the second. A faith community is the third place that benefits, again, not just the individual, but um, the community as a whole, those who are part of uh, the group and those Who uh, are outside of it. For people to flourish, we need a strong community. We need a community of people uh, who can live uh, with, uh, live together, and do life together. We need a community of people that encourage us, help us through hard times, and help us address the most important problems. Uh, where we live like the carrier pigeons of the past by flocking together and working together. We thrive. If you don't have a third place that's thriving outside of your family, outside of your place of work, you can recommend a church or a community, a nonprofit that uh, is a, a community of faith. Explore a faith community centered around prayer. Remember what it feels like to help others, to let technology strengthen your bonds so that you flock always together and strengthen one another. Just a thought. Tomorrow is Friday, and on Fridays we lighten up. That means we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news and we're encouraging you to uh, join us to do just that. In fact I'm looking forward to if I can uh, manage to get some time with James in studio tomorrow. I wanna to <laughs> look forward to giving him an opportunity uh, to share a bit of a mystery in his household. In fact it was um, made known to us yesterday when he arrived in, well, some rather unusual and unseasonable footwear. I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, but I'm going to invite James into, stu- into the studio to tell us a little bit about a dilemma in his household that he hopes to resolve this weekend. But uh, we're going to take a look at the lighter side of the news and tell some stories that I think will put a bit of a smile on your face. So I hope you'll plan uh, to join us. A couple of things I want to remind you of. Earlier in the program, we interviewed Kent Anon. He's the author of You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loved Us First. It is an opportunity to consider, reconsider in light of what scripture has to say, our attitude toward the those who dwell among us. This isn't a political debate. I'm not talking about taking sides necessarily there, although it's important that we think through the implications of public policy, but how we as followers of Christ ought to approach this now central and controversial issue. It was a, a helpful book, I think, in putting things into perspective. You might want to take, uh, take advantage of the book. It's, uh, again, uh, titled You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loved Us First, published by InterVarsity Press. I also spoke with Miki Addison. She's the director of communications for Urban Family Talk for One Million Moms. They are uh, circulating a petition, and uh, according to Miki, it's not too late to sign on to that petition. That would help uh, to suggest that kids are going to be watching the Super Bowl, and could we keep it clean so that families can enjoy this uh, uh, this together. So check that out. More details can be found on the Georgine Rice Show Facebook page. So um, you can look there. Want to thank James Blind for producing today's program, Clark Hilton for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.